From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back, listeners, to The Dairy Show. I am, as always, your host, Katie Schmidt. And joining us for this episode of the podcast, we are traveling up to Canada, actually, and this is something we haven't done often, which is shocking considering we've got a great audience up in Canada and such great dairy cattle up in Canada. But joining us from Fergus, Ontario, Canada is Russell Gammon. He holds some roles through the Canadian Goat Society as well as Canadian Guernsey. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Russell. Well, good morning, Katie. It is just uh, such a treat to be here. And uh, at a time of year when we're getting into spring, it's it's even it's exciting. But just to have this opportunity to visit with you is super great. So uh, greetings from Ontario. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, people, if they're familiar with your name, I mentioned that you work with the Goat Society and the Guernsey Association. And that might not be what people first align you with especially in the dairy industry. So Russell, why don't you give us just a brief introduction as to who you are and what your connection to dairy and agriculture is? More than happy to do that. Uh, Raised on a small rural property in Nova Scotia, both my grandparents were dairy farmers. I would say small-scale dairy farmers. And uh, then I went to the Nova Scotia Agricultural College, followed up by going to the University of Guelph to complete a degree uh, worked back at the NSAC for a while and then went to work for Jersey Canada for, let's call it a long, long time, uh, traveling through a variety of roles there. And after uh, a long sprint at Jersey Canada, went over to CMEX and managed their global Jersey program for five and a half, well, almost six years there, and then uh, moved into what has been called retirement. But that's kind of a joke because, you know, days start at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning and seem to end at 9.30 or 10 at night. So it's just a barrel of fun, I guess. So you've worked with all these different breeds throughout the years. How have you seen them progress and grow? And, And maybe, I don't know if they've become more similar to each other or more different. But what is your perception on these different breeds that you've kind of touched throughout your career? Exactly. Um, The Jersey breed has gone through quite a renaissance, and that's the one that I've been most closely associated with. And it was fascinating. You know, there used to be a lot of Jersey cows if we went back to the 1940s. And uh, and then coming forward into uh, the more modern era, numbers dropped off, volume pricing of milk, you know, the emphasis was more volume, more volume, more volume. And then, of course, there's been the movement towards multiple component pricing, and that has has changed things uh, dramatically. Here in, on, in Canada, we started with multiple component pricing 30 years ago in 1992 is when it first happened. And you could see a uh, a shift in the fortunes of people who had jerseys at that point in time. Uh, and as I say, that's the one I've been most uh, involved with. So you can see that. And over time, people started thinking, oh, okay, what's a way to increase the butterfat protein content of our milk? Oh, having a cow that produces high levels on average is a great idea. And so, so that happened. Uh, but there's no question that the Jersey cow has become a much more productive cow. Uh, than she was those 30 years ago or 40 years ago. 
so she can compete that way. And uh, so there's one example of changing fortunes uh, for, for a breed. Now, with regard to the other breeds, I, I'm fascinating. I, I have an Ayrshire background, actually. So there's another angle on all this. And so we've watched the Ayrshire breed over the years and yeah, maybe own one or two on a partnership basis. But having said that, um, one of the things I've observed also with Holsteins, and I'm fascinated with the changes that have gone on with Holsteins as well, uh, in terms of the current move to perhaps a more moderate size cow, but also uh, the Holsteins that I'm seeing today have incredible bone quality, Katie. They're, uh, they're clean, they're more refined in their bone than they used to be. The udders on two and three-year-olds are amazingly youthful for the amount of milk that's coming out of them. So all cows have uh, been bred for and fed for more production and managed for more production. And uh, when you look at that, it's astounding to me the amount of milk that's coming out of quite youthful udders on cows today that probably fit quite easily into modern systems as well. And uh, I give the Holstein breed like full marks on the changes that have come about there, the amount of, uh, you know, utter, great utter quality and great utter texture and, uh, and clearance, you know, above the hawks as well. It's been really amazing to see that kind of transition for a cow that was definitely very productive to begin with, you know, to become even more so and to be able to do it with, uh, with ease. So yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of transition in all the breeds. They've all changed. They have their standard uh, calling cards and the things that make them unique and distinct. But I think today we have a caliber of cow that is just so impressive and puts us in a, on a launch pad for the future as well, you know, which is obviously totally important. How do you perceive the Canadian style of cow? Because I think it's a little different to compare with the U.S. style of cow, or even a European style of dairy cow. Excellent question. Um, the Canadian, the Canadian cow in general, um, we have found ways to put more polish on them. If that's a, if that's a word that we could use, uh, it's that structural correctness that they have. However, I would say I'm seeing lots of knock your eyes out kind of cows in the United States as well. So we are we are a source of certain traits that make a cow uh, stand out in the, uh, in the show ring. But I don't, uh, I, yeah, I really don't see huge differences there. The appreciation for those kind of cows is, in the, is both in the same country because, you know, you get a lot of Canadian cows who sell well at sales and, as you've mentioned, uh, do very well at shows, are in demand for their breeding potential as well. So the distinctive that's there, I mean, it's, it's been probably the same as goals of many Americans as well. Great udders, strong feet and legs that allow the cow to last for years and produce heavily. Uh, body capacity, I think, has been very important up here. And, and I think many of our breeders are really focused on that as well. They want that strength still in there. They want that ribby cow with a lot of capacity, open ribs, flat bone. Uh, so if, if, but again, I, I know a lot of Americans who have exactly the same goal and folks all over the world who have that kind of goal, that kind of ideal cow in their minds. Uh, so differences, yes, but uh, I, I think there's quite a bit of homogeneity, if we can use that word, across dairy producers all around the world. 
Sometimes it's a pasturing situation. Sometimes it's a confined situation. Sometimes it's on concrete. Sometimes it's not. But, you know, the, the, the basics are there across the board. So sometimes I like to see uh, the unity of thought sometimes rather than the, uh, the distinctives. But <laughs> there is no question. Cows from Canada have had enormous success at WDE and, and other major events all over the world. And so there is a, there is a rep that's there, a reputation that, that fits and that has been consistent over decades as well. Absolutely. I really enjoy that phrase, unity of thought, because I think it shows an alignment not only in, in a breed, but in an industry too. On that thought or on that train of thought, Who's influencing these breeds or these breeders or who are influential breeders or is it associations? Is it companies? You know, who's pushing the, the industry or the breed to continue to improve? I see that everybody has a role to play in that situation because, uh, for instance, uh, genetics companies are going to offer certain genetic packages and they're going to have done their market research on what does the customer want? What are they telling us by semen sales uh, in that sense? On the other hand, uh, we have breed associations who are setting goals for their breeds. Now, that may sometimes relate to the number of members. So how attractive is the cow? Are people going to want to own her? But also what level of productivity we're expecting out of the cow? Uh, what kind of longevity we're expecting out of the cow? Which can fit into their type classification programs and their evaluation programs that are there. I, I think we also have the scientific community as part of that discussion in terms of uh, you tell us what the priority traits are, we will create indexes or proofs that, that indicate which animals are superior that can be used in a breeding program. And uh, absolutely, I think that the direction has to come ultimately from the dairy farmer because they are the people who either make money or have trouble making money based on whether their cows last, whether they produce for the market, whether they're appealing to other people so they can uh, sell genetics as well uh, to get that going. So again, I, I see some unity of, of thought there, but then I see distinctives as well, because each group will tell you, well, you know, I think we have the answer. And uh, I think we know, we know what we want, but Time and time and time again, you've got to go back to the practical, real-world dairy farmer who's making their living out of these cows, whether, regardless of how many cows they milk, that, that that will determine where the direction of the whole situation goes, because they are the ones that buy genetics. They are the ones that make those decisions on what genetics are coming into their herd they are the ones that decide which tools they use, whether it's proofs or conversations with other dairy producers. They're, they're going to make those decisions about which cow is going to be populating barns all over the world in the future. What traits are considered more important today in cattle in Canada? And we can talk Jersey specifically because that's the one that you've, you're so ingrained in. What traits are more important today than maybe they were when you started your career? That is, a, that is, again, a very fair question. One of the topics that I hear a lot today is dairy strength. Because we are demanding a lot from cows, uh, you know, when I would have started, I'm, I'm trying to quickly think what the average production of a jersey would have been in Canada, maybe 5,000 uh, 
kilograms of milk per year, which is, you know, 11,000, 12,000 pounds of milk. Now we're talking 7,000 kilograms, so we're probably 15,000 pounds of milk. Uh, and again, now one interesting point there, Katie, I think today we're thinking much more of the pounds of fat and protein that are coming out of the cow than necessarily the, uh, the pounds or kilograms of milk. But I hear dairy strength being discussed a lot amongst dairy producers. They want a cow that, you know, can be aggressive, can get into a, a group of cows in a freestall barn and get herself fed, you know, be, be keen that way. But also with, say, the advent of more use of robots, we're hearing people say, well, we want the right teeth placement on the cows and we want the right udder structure. Some things have changed. As I say, the dairy strength one seems to come up a lot, you know, and and people celebrate. And it's not always about, well, we can't find cows without dairy strength anymore. It's people are celebrating cows when they find ones that have good dairy strength, you know, great rib, great open uh, chest floor, great width through there, lots of spring of rib, uh, lots of length of body are celebrating those kind of situations. but they're also saying, well, that udder's still got to be there, and it's got to be capable of holding more milk than it, uh, than it was before. And I remembered people uh, saying way back in time when they really upped their management and maybe got into more productive genetics, well, the cows we had, their udders really couldn't handle that kind of production. You know, we could feed them, we could get them going. They had somewhat of a genetic motor, but they couldn't, uh, they couldn't handle long-term, really the kind of production levels that we were moving towards. So I, I see that happening. So there is a utter texture, I think, is, is something that's really important. If you're going to produce a lot of milk, you have to have that. And again, uh, depending on the management type, feet and legs continually. So some of it is, is universal and timeless, if you want to call it that. And some of it uh, is becoming quite a, a, a different measure uh, now as well, because people are saying there's something that we need more of. We need to get this back if we've had it before. And, uh, you know, we're demanding a lot of our cows today, but we still want them to have that strength. So they have five lactations, eight lactations. Uh, they calve easily. And, and one of the things that we perhaps haven't touched on is by this amazing change, in, and it was probably on your list, so maybe I'm getting ahead of things, uh, is this whole matter of the technologies that we have, like embryo transfer, IVF, probably better and more precise genetic evaluations on animals as well, and sex semen, uh, which has been a phenomenal game changer and, and has really uh, exploded the use of beef semen, regardless of which side of the border we're talking about. It's been phenomenal to see AI companies gear up and ramp up uh, their beef side of their business as well with the kind of bulls that are suitable for dairy cows as well, you know, rather than just a beef bull, it's a kind of a designer beef bull as well. So I'm, I'm sorry if I jumped ahead on that, but it came to mind that that's been a real game changer as well. Being able to get daughters out of the best cows in your herd, whether through sex semen or ET or IVF, one of my favorite lines is, we have no excuse for not making genetic progress today because we have so such a wide range of genetics available. We know, I think, well through genomics as well, what these uh, genetics can do. 
And but then we have the technology. So go make those heifer calves out of the cows that you want to have heifer calves of and make a beef cross calf out of those calves from cows who are around for another six months, you know, somewhere in there. And, uh, and so that has been uh, a big part of the whole transition that goes on as well, I think, in what kind of cows do we want and what tools do we have to make those cows as well, you know, to expand their influence in a population. When I, when I think about all of this, I think about how sex semen really impacted the heifer replacement group that we worked with, right? It grew the herd that we had to replace. And I think the use of beef semen kind of helped to bring that back under control a little bit. But how do we as an industry continue to do, like to make genetic progress and to improve the breed, but still recognize that there's value in keeping cows in a herd until they're nine, 10 years old and doing those five to eight lactations, like you mentioned? How, how do we balance those two things? That is, once again, you were asking superb questions today. You are right on the bit and on the money. How do we balance those two things? And, and I think it once again comes back to what makes the producer money. So if that, I think the older cows that are still around are capable of making money, so they're still there. Regardless of whether it's Canada or the United States, there are real bottom line decisions being made every day on well-managed dairy farms on all dairy farms about who stays, who's making us money, who isn't making us money. So let me let me put this forward as a proposition that if you've got some of those older cows who have been making a lot of money for you over eight years, perhaps since when they when they first calved, who um, are still healthy enough and can compete within the herd, why in a way wouldn't you want to expand their influence in your population? And uh, is, it, is it always just the, uh, the really young heifer that you know, is, the, is the superstar on her numbers that's, uh, that's there? I think it's, it's perhaps time that we've come to an appreciation of some of these cows. You know that term, Katie, invisible cows, you know, who don't cause you any trouble, who get in calf when they're supposed to or when you want them to, who uh, raise healthy calves, you know, who give you a healthy calf and get you started there. And I think we, we need to be celebrating those. And I, I believe there are producers who really do celebrate those kind of cows. I'm thinking about a cow I saw in Quebec last month who's about nine or 10 years old. And she's had quite a good number of lactations uh, because, you know, but she's also been flushed and has been an embryo maker, both for the herd owner and for sales. And uh, that's the kind of cow a producer really appreciates. He's, he's going to be excited by his first lactation animals or his heifers that are, you know, in the bred heifer pen or the, or the just got out of the calf hutches and are, are uh, going into the weanling pens and the, and the growth pens as well. And he's going to be excited about those. But I think we're seeing an appreciation for a cow who is so honest and does her job every day and lasts. And uh, if we as an industry keep that kind of balance, yeah, you want to keep making progress. You want your cows to be better in 2026 than they are today in, in 2022, I think is the year that we're in now. And so you want that happening, but you also want to expand the influence of cows who've made you money, who've proven 
lifetime profitability. You know, we have a lifetime profitability index up here. But I, I, but I also think a producer looks at it and says, okay, who's been making, who made me money here? Who's making me money right now? And uh, how do I expand that influence in my herd? So that, you know, breeding the herd rather than individuals, using an individual, now that we have the tools, the, the you know, the ET, the IVF, using an individual to start breeding the herd and getting all kinds of daughters of a cow like that or cows like that in a herd. So I asked those questions because these are questions that float around my house with my family. And yes. I think a lot of dairy farmers have those questions because there's this great appreciation for these old cows, but also recognizing that your young cows, in theory, should have the most genetic potential and you should want more calves out of your young cows. But how do you not want more calves out of your old cows? So I, that's, that's why I ask these questions because I, I think it's something that is very relevant for, for breeders and producers. Can I give you one more take on that? I remember a, a famous Jersey herd, and it, it doesn't matter who they were. They just had a lot of success. They had a lot of production success. They, they had great type cows as well and good longevity. And one of the policies they had was they really were quite vigilant on sorting out those young two-year-olds when they calved. And sure, there was from time to time a very definite reason why they would give a young cow a second or maybe a third chance, but they were also quite ruthless as well. Like if she really just didn't either look like she had the ability to make a lot of milk down the road or she kind of proved it through testing as well, they uh, they got rid of it. And And their goal was probably heavier on the production side. So they kind of developed a pure for production herd. And so there were less disappointments when those uh, first lactation animals calved. There was, oh, great, this is just dandy. We're, we're so happy with our group of two-year-olds as well. But, but as I say, we have the other tools now to make that group of two-year-olds better. And uh, whether it be mating programs or, you know, just having a really good bull that you know is going to work in your current herd, uh, should work really well in your current herd, let me correct myself. Uh, then those kind of opportunities are there now as well. And I think, I think that's what people are doing moving to larger herds. So I want to take a, a step back from cows in particular and, and the genetics of all of it. And I feel like I'd be remiss to not talk about just Canadian dairy in general with you, Russell. Can you explain for listeners what the Canadian dairy industry looks like? and how it maybe compares to what we know here in the US? Well, we would, and, and maybe to use some of the terms that'll be helpful, Katie, as well, we have uh, quotas here, which are national in basis, and you do have to have a quota to be a licensed milk producer in this country. I think the term base is sometimes used in, uh, in the United States. I know out in California, they talk about having a, a base, you know, of production that you're dealing with. What it's done, the reason it's been done is to make sure, and so it is largely for a domestic dairy industry for consumption within the country, and uh, you know, not, not a great goal on being out at, as an exporter, as a leading exporter in the world of, uh, of dairy products, milk or dairy products. So having said that, we have a system where production is controlled and it's based on kilograms of butter fat, is the measure. So 
basing it on kilograms of butter fat, you can sometimes have surpluses of protein. You know, if protein percent goes up more than you might need in the whole system, you know. But it is it is based on the kilograms of butter fat production and their various classes of milk as well. Having said all that, one of the interesting things that I was thinking about before the podcast was that um, we probably didn't have a, a, a large number of opportunities for people who wanted to get into production of their own products. It was a lot of the milk was being funneled into one pool, you know, in each province. You know, this is this is where milk goes. It's bought, it's uh, managed by a dairy the uh, well, DFO, Dairy Farmers of Ontario, would be an example here in Ontario. However, those organizations have now opened up opportunities, and it'd be actually just in the last 10 decades, uh, 10 years in the last decade, uh, that they have opened up opportunities for people to do either on-farm processing or go to a small processor. I mean, this has been uh, happening in the United States all the way through history in that sense. But it was it was incredibly uncommon here uh, that people would do that here. And, and there's been a real opening up of mindsets, and it's been so positive. Now, how many people will get into doing that as a percentage of the population? At the moment, uh, you know, there's 3,500, 4,000 dairy producers in Ontario. And uh, there would be 15 to 20 who are really into producing their own products. But what it does, Katie, is it opens up an opportunity, possibly for somebody who says, my dream is not to milk a thousand cows in the future. If I can do this with 75 cows or well, 50 cows or 100 cows and, and do this kind of marketing, then that's what I want in my future. Uh, and that's what my business plan, I'm going to base my business plan on. So this has been a really exciting development. So they still have quota. They still are selling their milk, in essence, to the dairy farmers of Ontario or the milk board in their province, but they have the allowance to use it right on farm. And you know what the beauty of this is, Katie? And, and again, maybe I'm getting a touch off track, but I think it's been so fascinating to watch it is it allows each individual to decide how they're going to do it as well. Are we going to have a farm store? Are we only going to work through distributors and not have a store on the farm? Do we want people coming to the farm to learn more about what we're doing? Or, you know, are we going to focus solely on managing, making great, high-quality milk and uh, getting it sold, getting it processed on the farm but sold elsewhere as well? And the beauty of this has been the way each, in, and I cannot get over how, and we talk about unity of thought, how individual each one of these opportunities has been. And, and you'd be well aware of this in your country as well. And it's not only in the Northeast of the United States, it happens everywhere, where people can use their imagination. They can try things. They can see if it works, if it, you know, if it really does uh, make them money, if it's, if it's the way of the future, or if they have to change courses, they're doing it. But it's risk, but it's also reward as well. And the imagination that producers have, the marketing buzz, the marketing skills they have, is mind-blowing. We have one here in Ontario who's done mint, mint chocolate milk. Now, this is being done the week of St. Patrick's Day, but that was kind of the idea, you know, we're going to make a 
uh, a mint chocolate milk as our particular flavor for a limited period of time, kind of like a St. Patrick's Day special. But it, it just, the, the ways that it allows them to get closer to their customer as well and be, and be understanding what the customer wants, uh, you know, using glass bottles as opposed to plastic or cartons. Uh, just the the routes that people have taken are spectacular. And uh, this is a really exciting part of it in terms of, you know, maybe getting people back drinking milk who haven't been drinking as much milk or getting excited about, you know, local dairy product. I'm sorry, I could go on for ages about this because I've just found it so fascinating, the different approaches that people have taken. And doing your market research are there other people doing the same thing as us too close to us? You know, is this going to work for us? Are we close enough to a market in general and to a, a, a population of people who uh, are sufficient in number that we can sell all our milk eventually through these routes as well? So uh, having a little bit off topic there, but it was, it was kind of an exciting part of the industry that has blown my mind in the last uh, five to 10 years if people have established their track records on doing this and become so individual. Like uh, one more example, some folks in Cape Britain, which is in Nova Scotia on the East Coast, started producing a cheese which had been made in kitchens. It's kind of like a Cape Britain kitchen cheese. It, uh, over time with you know less people owning cows or having a couple of cows at home or having 10 cows on the farm, uh, that tradition had kind of died out. And so these people said, well, we can make that kind of cheese. And the demand, and it was like, it was all this um, um, remembrance of how it used to be and again, nostalgia to a point, but also excitement about, I can get that cheese again. I don't have to make it in my own kitchen. These people are making something which is as close to what that cheese used to be 25, 30, 40 years ago, you know, when I was a kid growing up. It lets people like, you know, renew family traditions if they were cooking things with that cheese. And it, I mean, it, yeah, the U.S. is filled with examples like that, right? Like that's a way that producers have discovered they can stay small-ish. Some of them are kind of that mid-sized farm and still doing this, but it, it gives them a chance to diversify and, and really excel and exceed. I'm intrigued by when you talk about people who are innovative and trying new things, these uh, producers who have figured out how to make vodka out of milk? Yes, a vodka. I have some in my fridge as well, which uh, it is absolutely wonderful. Is. There's some cream ones that are just, you know, uh, just a delight. In, in, you know, it's not like it's a high test in that sense. You know, you can have a glass and unwind without, uh, without having uh, a lot of, but that was just... Oh, it's very smooth and just an example of saying, okay, we've got some of this excess product here. What are we going to do with it? What can we do with it? And it was, it's great for the dairy industry. It's great for them as a business. And it's very popular with consumers as well. So, you know, it's innovation and it's kind of stopping in the rush of all the lives that we live and saying, okay, what have we got in our hands here? What have we got near at hand? And maybe having somebody who has no connection to the dairy industry coming in and saying, hey, guys, you should, be, um, you should be doing this. You should use this product. This shouldn't be put on the shelf for a low value product. This could be something that has enormous 
economic potential and marketing potential as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, they're in eastern Ontario, near our nation's capital of Ottawa. They have, it's, it's been brilliant. But I am surprised to learn, though, that it still falls within the quota system. When you said that, I'm, I'm very shocked that that is how it still functions, that they're still controlling that supply holistically as a country, regardless of how that milk is being used. Well, one of the things that can happen there is if you get using all of your own milk, then you can probably apply it if you can, you know, and you can, to an extent, pick out the people that you might like to work with. You know, if it's breed specific, for instance, uh, Guernsey, you know, we have EB Manor Farms who does, and they have a 100% Guernsey herd. They've done the testing on A2A2. You know, they've they've got a herd that weeded out the ones that were A1A1 or A1A2. And uh, they have grown their market milk, yogurt. There's somebody that makes some ice cream out of their milk. So they've grown to the point where they really need other milk. So you can go within the system and say, okay, that producer over there fits. And if they're in agreement with it, I would really like to get access to their milk geographically, they're close at hand. And I'm thinking about a specific example in mind here. And so you, uh, you do that. And it's and in a way, it's kind of because there is a system like that, which, you know, where, where everybody has a handle on who's producing milk. And then you can look at, well, what's the composition of that herd? What is the quality of milk that's in that herd? Are they doing a good job? Are they really keeping a clean place and producing that great milk that we all love so much? So it is, it is interesting, but it has existed within the system, uh, the quota system, and it, it, it was a, an acknowledgement that, hey, you're doing something to continue to get people to drink milk, to understand how great dairy products are, and we're going we're gonna to support that. So, and you know, over time, you can buy more quota over time if it becomes available and expand on that. But sometimes the option is I need to work with someone else. And, and so you make that bridge to another producer and, and have them as your, as your source. So do you have like the co-op structure in Canada that we have here where it's all member owner co-ops and people are sending stuff in? There's some privatized, but for the most part, it's all co-op based. Is that the structure in Canada? There are co-ops here. Now, you would still be within the quota system. There's a, a very famous one not far from here called, or well-known one, called Gay Lee. And they have members who are uh, part of the co-op and, and their milk would be, you know, going to, uh, going to Gay Lee. But it's largely the milk board that directs where milk goes. So you're selling into a pool. You can be segregated yourself, you know, for your own use, or you could be uh, you could be directed towards particular plants as well. But I would say it's it's different, Katie, than and I I know some of the structure in the United States, and I would say uh, there's quite a difference there. You know, where you're you're uh, tied into a particular co-op, and that's where your milk's going as long as that co-op continues to exist and you want it to be there. But I believe you could move to some, to some other uh, company as well. If they'll take you, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. If they've got that demand for, uh, for milk going, going there. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, as I say, I think one of the fascinating things has been the development of this, you know, segregation into individual producers, but who can work with someone else to get more product if they if they need that down the road, you know, as they grow, as they grow their market. And and what as I say, one of the exciting things about it is getting people back drinking milk or consuming dairy products who maybe had really slowed down on that as well as we as we contend with all the options that are out there. Earlier, I just mentioned how California had a base program for their milk. And there's other co-ops that have in the U.S. that have put in place like um, production caps. So this is your production limit. And, and I think sometimes it's easy to get that mixed up with what a quota is. So because quota is still tied to pricing, though, correct? So and I don't, and that's not the case here. Even if there's a production cap, you're still at risk of the milk market that we we live and die by here in the U.S. So how how does the quota system impact the milk pricing? And obviously, you talked about it being butter fat related, but like, what does that look like? I can see. I your your question is wonderful, and it's a very wise question as well. Quotas can also be reduced if uh, consumption goes down. Or if there's an increase in demand, they can go up. And there will be influences on the actual price of milk as well. Although you would not find it to be as variable as it has been sometimes in the United States. It's yes, it can it can back down again because you know demand is lower, demand for these components is lower, but it can also it can also go in the opposite direction. But it's it, over time, it's probably more of a stable situation because, again, we're controlling production, so we don't have a huge surplus at any point in time because of the system, which is saying this is the amount of milk we need. If sales tell us that we need more, we'll up production by 1%. Or, you know, there's fall incentive days here as well. So you could be producing more milk without having to buy more quota, say, for three months as well. That is an interesting aspect of this. So, yeah, it's it, it'll be fascinating for, uh, and it, we know the discussions are going on all the time, producers in the two countries and around the world talking about, well, this is how our system works, and this is how the other one works. But, yeah, there, there can be some influence on blend prices as well uh, within the Canadian system, and so your milk check will vary over time. But there's been quite a bit of stability as well, which allows you to do that forward planning and say, okay, this year we had this much income. We know what our expenses are. You know, can we can we build that new freestall barn? Can we put that new bedded pack in? Is it time? Can we afford robots? Can we afford a rotary parlor or rotary robots, as I think some people call them, some of them now as well? There's There's been that uh, ability within the system that people can look and say, yeah, I, we're okay. We should be all right and talk to their lending organizations and say, we should be all right for the next two to three years if everything continues on this path. And we can uh, we can justify that advancement in facilities, size, maybe a little more quota, you know, to keep growing as well, uh, to get to get things going. So there there are influences on pricing as well. It does not it does not always stay the same amount. Uh, that it has been even two months ago. You know, it can can fluctuate. So that that opportunity, uh, that uh, reality is there. So I want to 
end this on a high note. And I, I would love to hear what you see to be the future of dairy in Canada. Like what does the dairy industry look like in the future in that country? I'm, I'm getting really excited uh, about the future because of this ability of certain people to do the segregation that's there. I'm, I think we've adjusted well to some of the concerns about, uh, you know, how animals are cared for. I think we do a, we're doing a, a great job on that with uh, codes of practice for caring for animals and being able to defend everything that's done. We have a lot of looking at dairy farms. Uh, there's a program where they're looking at the cow comfort, the cow health as well, to, to verify that cows are treated well and uh, that are treated in a, in a more than humane way as well. Uh, I think we're, we're on the verge of seeing some uses of milk, perhaps in a more untraditional ways. Maybe, you know, we've talked a lot about pharmaceuticals over the years and using milk components, and obviously that's been happening, but is that gonna ramp up as well as we're going into the future? We have a great group of young people you know, it's interesting, Katie, and I'll, I'll try not to go too much longer, but this has been so much fun. We could talk all day. The concept of, well, I'm not sure I want the kids to come back to the farm. You know, I don't know that that would be a good life for them. And now we're getting this generation of uh, farmers who are coming back. We have something called Canadian Dairy Expo, which prior to, you know, the famous thing that happened two years ago in March was rolling along and, and in a, in a, country of our size was attracting 15,000, 16,000 people over two days. And there, they were finding that 50% of the attendees were 35 years of age and under. You know, the ones that were identifying as dairy producers were 50% of them were 35 years of age and, and under. So we now have a situation where I pe think people can say, you know, the automation of farms it's not like you're going to be necessarily putting your knees out by the time you're 48 years old or having back problems and things like that, the physical labor side of it. And uh, it's, and, you know, robots in certain instances have made it appealing for people to uh, come back in terms of their lifestyle. And it can still uh, contact you when you're at your kid's basketball game. But nonetheless, it you know allows you more flexibility to have those other parts of your life that are very important as well. So I, I see that. I see young people that are enthusiastic about the industry, that are capable, that have good business skills, that are, are challenging. And then also the other interesting thing that I see in the future is the forms of diversification, like having a beef component in your dairy operation where it used to be dairy only. And, uh, you know, I think as some of the people have integrated Wagyu genetics, you know, or, or established Wagyu herds as one example. So I think we're just thinking so broad now as well about how do we make income? How do we make a good living? How do we make a great life out of a, out of a, of a farming enterprise, you know, and what are our options in terms of diversification as well? And, uh, you know, or, or the beef cross calves that you're producing, how do you manage those? Do you sell them right away? You know, or do you put that into your business plan as well? So I, I just see the tremendous opportunities. We have so many smart people, our country, your country, who are involved in the industry, who know, you know, how the rest of the world works as well, and are, are challenging us to prepare for the future. 
I also could talk to you all day, Russell. This has been a blast, but I feel like we probably have to kind of end our conversation, unfortunately. Yeah. But again, this has been fantastic and I feel like so insightful for me. So hopefully listeners feel the same way. But I have to say thank you so, so much for being a part of The Dairy Show today and for taking the time. I want to just send the thank you right back down to Wisconsin, as I call it. And uh, I love saying that's my favorite state to talk about, Wisconsin. So in any event, it has been a tremendous thrill, and it's been energizing. It, it hasn't taken energy out. It's, it's put more energy into my day, Katie. So thank you so much. It's just been like a full treat. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.